Alright, everybody, bring it in. Another edition of the Read Option here on a rainy Monday afternoon, Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever you're listening to this. I hope y'all are having a wonderful day flying solo today on the podcast. And look, we got lots to talk about. We had an incredible, absolutely incredible sports weekend that just passed. Uh, Everything from golf to NFL news. Of course, the NBA playoffs kicked off. We had college softball regionals going off. Now the super regionals, my JMU Dukes, the Lady Dukes of the women's softball team finding their way to their third super regional in the last five years. Uh, There's just, there's so much going on and it's objectively an awesome, awesome thing. And, you know, we were talking earlier today on, on the radio show, uh, on ESPNU radio with Sirius XM, we were talking about how different a, a you know a year ago was, right? You know, May twenty fourth, twenty twenty. What did that look like? And it ranged from the beginning of golf starting to come back. I think the the RBC Heritage Open. I think I think I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think they were the first ones to kick off right around this time. Uh, the NBA obviously was still on pause. The NHL was on pause. We had NASCAR. NASCAR was like the number one sporting event that we really even had. And so to to see where we are now a year later, after 15 months of a pandemic, to feel like we're in a place where, you know what, like sports are back. There's fans in the stands. I mean, watching that Knicks game this weekend was unbelievable yesterday. I mean, we saw so many incredible reactions just from, you know, Guys like uh, Emmanuel quickly hitting a, a pull up three from deep, and and people on the sidelines and the stadiums going nuts. There's a vaccinated section that looked like normal fans, and there was a non vaccinated section that was still spread out, but they were still able to be there. The whole thing w- was really phenomenal, and uh, you know it, it's interesting too because while I still have some reservations about going out and being in a really big public setting all the time it is nice to see it 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 is and if you feel comfortable and if you're vaccinated i got my second dose um i'll be fully vaccinated by midweek this week it takes a couple weeks for it to kind of settle in like it's an incredible amount of freedom you know and to feel like we're kind of back even in in a weird capacity even if it does feel a little bit different we are really starting to come back and I think for a lot of people, you know, sports was one of the things obviously that, that kind of helped, you know, make the pandemic feel so much realer than it ever was with the Rudy Gobert game, the Utah jazz and, and everything that happened in that OKC and Utah game back on March 11th of, of 2020. And now here we are over, you know, almost 15 months later and things really do start to feel like, man, like after everything we lost, having watching those games in the bubble, I talked about with Scotty on the podcast on Thursday, you know, the, the impact that fans have, it's being felt all over the place. And this is really the first weekend that it felt spectacular and, and no place bigger than in Kiowa Island with lefty Phil Mickelson at age 50, damn near 51 years old, winning the PGA championship, oldest person ever to win a major and that crowd, especially on 18 as he was walking up was just, it was insane. It was very reminiscent of when Tiger won his first tournament in the last event of the year, a couple of years ago, I think it was like August. It was the August before he went on to win the masters. The, the crowd that that swarmed him and, and Rory on 18. I mean, for Phil, it was insane. I know Kepka was not stoked about how that all played out. And, and look, I had a small wager on Kepka if he had won because the odds were so astronomical. Even on Kepka winning, it would have been like a $350 payout. And yet I still was okay watching what happened on on Sunday because Phil, and it all started with the bunker shot, I think it was on seven, that he chipped in. And when, when that went in, it really felt like, oh, he's going to do this. And there was a couple times it got within a stroke or two but he just found ways to keep grinding out tough holes. And Kiowa is a really, 
really tough course to play. The wind there is brutal. The greens there are brutal. And yet Phil came out, dominated the entire time. And it was really, it was really impressive to see. And it made me feel like, holy cow, like, like these old guys. And I don't know how many other guys, if this is now a sign with golf, I think part of the, the thing that we're seeing now is in years past, when the equipment wasn't what it is now, you know, younger guys would just start to blow past anybody past the age of 40. And what we've seen is that, you know, courses can only adjust and add so many yards before it becomes ridiculous. And I think we're kind of at that point where courses can't really adjust much further and the technology is still getting better and better in clubs. So if you can get in shape, like it took Phil about a year to be able to hit some of these bombs, you know, the whole 16, the par five at Kiowa on Sunday, he had the longest drive of the day. And look, at that point, he had some adrenaline running through him, but he pounded it like three, I think it was like 340, 350, somewhere in that ballpark. I mean, we're talking about like major, major bombs from a 50-year-old golfer. And the technology has allowed these guys to still compete because you have to be able to hit it long when you're going up against guys like Rory and Kepka and DeChambeau who can hit the ball a freaking mile. And yet here we see 51-year-old, 50-year-old Phil Mickelson coming out, chipping, working his way around the greens, using a blade putter that has just no like advanced technology in it. It was, it was very much like when you would go play pickup when you're in high school and there's like the 40 or 50-year-old guy who doesn't quite move, but he played in college and he still got the jump shot and the footwork and he still can just own the young guys. Like it really felt that way. And it was just phenomenal to see. It, it really was. There wasn't any dramatics. There wasn't all these all this flair. It wasn't overly competitive. I thought Saturday was insanely competitive. Uh, and, and the first, you know, eight or nine holes, you know, it, it got tied at one point. Kepka and and Phil were both at minus seven. But as soon as they're – because it was actually kind of interesting. What happened was you had Phil was up a stroke. Uh, no, Phil was up two strokes, actually. And he bogeyed a hole. And Brooks birdied it, right? So then they were tied. And then on the very next hole, we saw another two-stroke swing where Brooks bogeyed, Phil birdied, and then boom, just like that, it's a two-stroke lead. And I don't think it got below. It might have gotten down to one at one point. But from there on, it really felt like Phil was going to cruise as long as he didn't make any mistakes. But not only did he not make any mistakes, he played really, really great golf. And, you know, for a guy who has dedicated his entire life, like, People forget that all those years when Tiger Woods was making $100 million a year in endorsements, Phil was right behind him. Phil was the second highest paid athlete in the world for the better part of the you know 2000 to 2010, like that entire decade when he was really at his peak. Phil was making freaking bread, right? So this isn't like a guy struggling on the tour to be able to go, but he was an exception you know, they made an exception to allow him in because he's won the he had won the PGA before. He didn't qualify based off of merits, based off I've been playing. There were no signs that he was going to be able to win this weekend. And yet, and, and honestly, that was reflected by his odds. And I, I hopefully on Thursday we're going to get Scotty on to talk about this. Scotty threw 10 bucks on Phil Mickelson to win before the tournament started. The odds were plus twenty five thousand dollars twenty five thousand. So that means a $10 bet nets you $2,500. So a massive win for our boy there who has hit a couple of times, whether it's the Georgetown winning the Big East, which I still don't understand how we saw, or now Phil Mickelson pulling off the unimaginable at 50 years old to go off and win. I thought was just, it was incredible. It was incredible to see that happen. And uh, I love Phil. Phil's always been one of my favorite players on tour. He's still the best short game player I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Jordan Spieth is right up there when he's at his best. Tiger, I, I think Phil's a better short game, better wedges than Tiger. Tiger just had that like tenacity where he was just always going to beat you. Like no matter what, like Tiger was going to beat you. And Phil, who had a couple of choke jobs in his career, you know, Tiger never really had that. And that was, that was kind of the separator between the two is the mental side of it. And they talked a lot on the broadcast over the weekend was, you know, Phil has not only transformed his body, from, you know, the chubby man boobs kind of like joke, especially as he got up there, you know, in his in his early mid 40s to this slim down monster calves, 
tan, good looking. I love he wears the aviator looking shades on the golf course. Like the dude is just stylish and hilarious and awesome. And, you know, I saw the the video of him doing the, the awkward dance commercial where he was like dodging golf balls on the range. And I, it made me laugh because it's like that was only a few years ago. And we went from from that goofy dad, Phil, who was never going to win another major, never going to compete really at a high level again to now Phil Mickelson won the PGA championship at 50 years old. That is a, a remarkable feat. And I keep saying 50 years old. I, I can't imagine anybody doing anything pro- in a professional sport at the highest level. You know, imagine a, a fit, you know, when Jamie Moyer was like 47 and still hanging on in the major leagues as a pitcher throwing 76, but just spotting it everywhere with a nice changeup. you know, that was insane. But imagine if he played three more years, played until he was 50, and then goes out and throws a no-hitter or goes on to be an ace on a World Series team. You know, there, there are no examples of this. Now, maybe Tom Brady will be the one to break it, but even Tom Brady still has to play for seven more years. And yes, it's golf, right? It's not a contact sport. You know, it's not based off of pure athleticism. But... Old guys haven't won. Remember, no one has ever won a major at age 50. So this is something that has never been done before. And so I thought the entire weekend watching Phil do what he did, uh, I was locked in from the get-go. And, and, and Scotty even said it on the pod on Thursday. You know, hey, look at Phil. He's a, he was at two under after the first day. Man, did he hang around and did he do something special? And it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal for, for the game, for him for the fans, you know, and, and who knows, maybe he comes off and, and wins another green jacket or, you know, can, can pull it off at the U S open. I believe the U S open is the only major he hasn't won. He's got three green jackets. He's got now two PGA championships and I believe he won the British open. So I think the only thing he has left to do to win the, 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 you know, career grand slam is to win the U S open. So maybe we see something happen for Phil, I'm not sure if we ever will again. And it, it reminded me a lot of when Tiger won the Masters, you know. And, and look, Tiger's comeback was a lot more dramatic because Tiger was one of the most famous athletes in the world. And not that Phil's not, but Phil, even at his highest level, was still always second to Tiger. So to see him get his moment here, especially given what happened with Tiger and the car accident and, and everything that's happened this year, to see somebody from that generation pull off this again is just phenomenal. And, and we're getting to see that, you know, yeah, there's a lot of young bucks. Yeah, you know, Brooks Kepka, And look, Brooks did an unbelievable job. And, and I saw some people say on, on Twitter and stuff like, does this t- tarnish some of the, the vibrato that Brooks Kepka has, some of the allure around him? Like, get the hell out of here, man. Like, the dude was playing on a freaking busted knee. He got knee surgery two months ago. And he was in the final pairing of a major less than two months later. I, I All credit in the world to Brooks Kepka. I thought he played incredibly well. Uh, he had a rough Sunday, no question. But when you're playing on a knee that had like ligament surgery two months ago, that is still busted. And there were, always, there were clowns who kept being like, you know, Tiger did it with a torn ACL and a broken leg. You know, show me when there's something impressive. And it's like, dude, shut the fuck up. Like, just get out of here. Both things can be impressive. You know, Tiger winning on a torn ACL and a broken leg can still be impressive, is is impressive. But just because Brooks didn't do it to the same level of injury doesn't make anything that he did this week any less incredible or impressive. So uh, I thought it was an awesome PGA championship all the way around. Um, It was lower scoring. You know, Phil won with a minus six, which – I thought it would be closer to like minus 10 would be the winning score, but you know, the, the, the greens there being able to chip off the green from weird spots. I mean, Kiowa is a tough place to play and it was absolutely scenic and beautiful. And I thought the fans and the crowd was incredible. Would have liked to have seen a few more masks. Something tells me that a lot of those people probably weren't vaccinated, but Hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being judgmental there. I, I hope I'm not, but, but maybe I am. Um, but yeah, so that's that's my takeaways from the PGA Championships. Y'all know I love golf. It's my favorite sport, uh, one of my favorite sports. Uh, it's definitely my favorite activity. So I, I was just blown away. And, and to me, that despite the first games of the NBA playoffs going off, that was still the most incredible thing I saw this weekend. Like I had 
you know, the laptop up and the TV on and golf was on the TV. Golf was on the big stage for me. And I was watching the basketball on the, uh, on the side, but uh, the other big interesting thing that kind of came out and this happened today, actually Monday morning, first things first, which is the TV show with Shannon Sharp and skip Bayless, which is a terrible program. Do not waste your time watching it. They pulled some fucking shitty stuff today. Like we're, I'm talking about like really shady and, and, and crappy stuff. What they did to Julio Jones, Shannon Sharp decided to pull out his phone and call Julio Jones on speakerphone in the middle of a live television show on Fox Sports 1. Did the flagship show of Fox Sports 1, right? It's supposed to rival first take. It gets demolished in the ratings, like absolutely crushed in the ratings. And this, and I'm not one to say working in the media, you know, I work with a lot of people who get criticized and saying, you're just saying hot takes, or you're just trying to you know, make something out of nothing or whatever, you know, that's not actually how you feel. You're just saying that, you know, I see this stuff from people I work with and I know for a fact that it's not true. So the, all of media is just out here to try to, you know, take down people and grab headlines. I don't believe that that is true. Are there a lot of articles that get written that have catchy headlines? Sure. Every single newspaper that's ever been written, that's been the intention, right? The headline of a story is meant to grab your attention. That's been why, that's why, you know, it, it's not an uncommon practice. It's just how it's always been. But because of everything, and especially in the political world, you know, people have more so now than ever been reluctant to believe that when somebody is, is coming out and saying something, they're just trying to do it genuinely. What happened on First Things First was a, a 110% headline grab on a show that has been dying for a long time and yet they're still paying skip bayless three million dollars a year i'm sure they're paying shannon sharp pretty damn close to that if not more to to you know run the show that gets less than two hundred thousand viewers every single day and you might say oh two hundred thousand that's a pretty big number no it's not it's not not when you can not when you look at the ratings that that first take does when they're on at the exact same time and they cold called Julio Jones, put him on speakerphone, and they asked him, hey, are you coming to the Cowboys? Because there was a picture that surfaced over the weekend of a fan who met Julio Jones in Dallas, and Julio was wearing a Cowboys sweatshirt. And so, of course, people took that and ran with it like, oh, is, is that where Julio's gone? And look, we've known for a while that there's a likelihood that the Falcons are going to trade Julio Jones once they get to July 1st, because that's when the cap situation, or July 1st or June 1st, but that's when um, his contract becomes significantly easier to trade. And what's unfortunate is that as he was talking on the phone, the, the speaker phone said, you know, that popped out, what he said was, I'm out of there. That's the quote, right? Are you leaving Atlanta? Do you want to go to the Cowboys? He goes, man, I'm out of there. You know, I'm gone. And then he said, but I'm not going to the Cowboys. Cause he's like, I want to win. I'm not going to the Cowboys. Cause I want to win, which again, as an Eagles fan, I'm like, that's hilarious. That's fantastic. But putting that aside and just looking at like what it is exactly. He, he says there is that it really seems like Julio Jones put in a trade request and Schefter's come out and somewhat confirmed that uh, as has Rappaport. And what sucks is that so often when a player asks for a, a trade, when there's a trade request that gets put in from a player to the front office, they use their agent to leak the information to the media to try to create a media buzz around it, to force the hand of the organization to trade him. Julio seemed to have done this, but did not make it public. Because this rumor about Julio potentially being on the trading block was all from Atlanta. And I think everybody who watches and pays attention to football realized like, when they heard that, it really sounded like Atlanta was just trying to trade him, not that he wanted out of Atlanta. And... It's unfortunate because it's so rare to have a player to have the respect of, to, of the organization be like, look, I've enjoyed my time here. I don't want to do you guys dirty. Can you try to find a trade for me? When that happens, nine times out of 10, 99% of the time, it gets leaked. But that's not what Julio did. He did it the quote unquote right way. And so then this show 
which again has been failing miserably for years now, decides, okay, I'm going to uh, just cold call this guy, put him on blast, not tell him that he is live on television. They didn't tell him. They just called him up in the middle of a live TV show and just absolutely put him on blast to the point where now you can't look at anything on NFL Twitter without it being directly linked to Julio Jones. Everything about NFL Twitter right now is about Julio Jones. He's been trending all day. And it sucks because it looks bad on it makes Julio look bad. It makes the Falcons look bad. It makes everybody involved in the direct situation look bad, including Fox Sports, Skip Bayless and Shannon fucking sharp. Because it was nothing more than let's get as much attention as we can. Because to the public, all it seemed was the Falcons are looking to trade Julio Jones. It wasn't Julio Jones is demanding a trade. It wasn't Julio Jones is put in a trade request to get out of Atlanta. And it's really unfortunate. It's just, it just sucks that this is what happened to him. It sucked that that's what happened to this whole narrative because Everybody who, again, everybody who watches and follows along with football, nobody thought this was anything more than the Falcons looking to trade him, which, by the way, a lot of people were confused by to begin with. They're like, why do they want to trade Julio? I mean, a, a, a receiving core that's going to have Calvin Ridley, Kyle Pitts, and Julio Jones, that sounds pretty damn good. Like, sign me up for some of that. And nobody quite understood. And now that we're hearing this and hear that it was a trade request, it's starting to make more sense. And again, it just makes Julio look bad in the light. And luckily, more of the heat has been put on Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp, first things first, Fox Sports, which it should. But it still sucks that this is kind of how it ended up going when we're you know only a few, potentially just a little bit of time away from the being able to complete a trade that wouldn't have made either the organization or Julio look bad. And instead, what we have is Julio, Shannon Sharp, uh, or so we have is Julio and the Atlanta Falcons kind of getting thrown under the bus a little bit, even though it seems that they did business about as well as they could. Um, sorry, that's all I got on that. I just, it just really, it really irked me because there are a lot of really good journalists. There are a lot of really good radio show hosts and TV show hosts who don't look for clickbait. They don't look for what's, I mean, look, it's entertainment. Like their job is to, on a lot of ways, you know, say something that's going to make people feel something one way or the other. Being a hundred percent down the middle can be tricky, right? Because how else are you supposed to grab people's attention? But in this case, it was just, it was just blatant what this was. And it was the arrogance of someone like Shannon Sharp to think that he can just cold call one of the greatest wide receivers of the, of the last 20 years, an, an absolute Hall of Famer in Julio Jones, can just call him up out of the blue and put him on blast like that. And, and what sucks is it really seems like Shannon Sharp and Julio Jones are tight. And it doesn't seem like there was any sort of beef between the two. It just kind of seems like, hey, like, this sucks. Like, like I just did this and we're tight, but like, I don't know, man, it just, it rubbed me the wrong way. If Julio's cool with it, then like, who am I to be upset by it or whatever? I just felt like they kind of did Julio dirty, who has been his entire career has been nothing but a stand up awesome player. Uh, all right, quick break. We're going to come back here. We're going to tackle the, the rest of the show is just going to be NBA first round game one reactions First game, four sets of game two start tonight, Monday, and will be played throughout the rest of the week. So uh, hang tight. We'll be right back in a second. The NBA playoffs finally kicked off. If you ask me, I kind of feel like the play-in games are still a part of the playoffs. No, they're technically not, but it's still more or less lose and go home, right? Like by its very definition of what a playoff game is, it's still playoff games especially the friday night game with uh with golden state and memphis i mean that that game was incredible and john morant went off and dylan brooks went off and and we got a little bit of a preview of what we would see last night in the utah and memphis game but the, the grizz held on and, and put out an incredible win on friday night and then we were off and running on saturday and i'm gonna run through the saturday games i'm gonna take a break and then we'll, we'll end with the, the sunday games uh, and we're just kind of going, going to go in order here from how the games are played, starting off with the Miami Heat and Milwaukee Bucks, which, like, what an amazing way to kick off the playoffs, man. I mean, 
We're talking about an, an overtime game, a, a bucket that was a uh, clutch bucket at the end of the game by Chris Middleton uh, with like, I think it was like 0.5 seconds left on the clock. I mean, the whole thing was really incredible. And, and it's important to know too, the Heat did not play well, especially uh, Jimmy Butler and Bam both had collectively like two of the worst games we've seen them have, especially in the playoffs, given the incredible run they went on last year. But what we know about this heat team is that they're not going to go away. Right. We, we know the heat are going to be an intense competitive team throughout this entire series. And I'm not sure how many games it's going to go. I wouldn't be shocked if it goes seven, I would be shocked if it goes five and the bucks are just too talented, but that game, the fact that it was so back and forth and, and a lot of times we'll see, you know, and, and as we're talking about the playoffs, People overreact from game one. They overreact every single year, right? You can go back through that all of history and, and all of the NBA history and, and look at teams and series where one team won game one. And it's surprisingly, it's surprising, honestly, just how many teams and how many will go on to win a, a, a series after dropping game one. That being said, the numbers do indicate that most of the time, the team that does win game one will go on to win the series, but it's important not to overreact. And in that game, you know, Chris Middleton, 27.6 rebounds, six assists. You know, he is the third, third, second. I, I think he's the best pure scorer on that team. You know, Giannis had 26, 18 and five, 18 rebounds. It's just Jesus. But the big difference maker there is Drew Holiday. Because before, when they would close out games, they'd be like, all right, let's get the ball to Middleton and make him create something on his own because it would be Eric Bledsoe as the other guard, you know, as the other potential playmaker. And Bledsoe has a career mapped out of being unclutch, being the opposite of clutch, you know, in those crunch time playoff big moment games. Drew Holiday is not only going to give you all defense caliber defense, you know, but he's also going to be a guy who can facilitate, especially in those waning moments. And I think what we'll see here in this series is a lot of Giannis dominating throughout the first three and a half quarters and then really trusting Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday because you trusted Chris Middleton, but you never trusted Eric Bledsoe. You never trusted who the other guard was. And because of Giannis and the way he plays, you know, it's very similar to Shaq, right? In those early 2000s Lakers team, you know, Shaq didn't need the ball at the end of games and tight games because they had Kobe there. So Shaq could dominate through three and a half quarters and then sit around in the dunker spot and try to collect offensive rebounds in the last few possessions. And then, you know, you let Kobe do that. You let Kobe do that. But they also had guys like Derek Fisher who would kind of set up the offense, someone that you trusted to run the ball. And I think what we see out of Drew Holiday is someone who you trust at the end, you know, Holiday went 0 for 5 from 3. He ends up scoring 20 points. He was still plus 10, led the Bucks in plus minus because he's so good on the defensive end. And even only putting up three assists, he still is able to orchestrate the offense in a way to initiate the offense, get the ball to Chris Middleton at the end of games. And that's exactly what they did on that last possession. And Chris Middleton did an incredible job you know, working down, finding space and hitting an awesome step back mid range to win the game. But look, the heat are not going anywhere. Um, you know, Bam out of bio goes four for 15. Jimmy Butler goes four for 22. Jimmy Butler taking nine, three pointers in a playoff game. I mean, he, he was like second to last out of qualified guys. Uh, I think it was out of the top, like 30 in PER. Like he was, second to last in players that's what it was it was second to last out of players averaging 20 points or more in three pointers attempted the only player who had attempted less three pointers than him uh while still averaging 20 points or more was zion so jimmy butler has been inefficient it's his worst career shooting season from three i think he's shooting somewhere like 29 30 percent from three he can't be taking nine threes in a game. He needs to get back to what he does best, which is drive the paint, you know, kick out if he has to, draw fouls, finish at the rim, work on your, you know, work the mid-range. But this team, I mean, Trevor Ariza played 38 minutes. Trevor Ariza. That's a guy who's been in the league a long time. So while I believe in the fight and the heart of the Miami Heat and the whole heat culture thing, I'm not sure how much I buy into the roster that they have because 
you know, Tyler Hero took a massive step back. And in a game that went to overtime, he only played 19 minutes. You know, Trevor Reza played 38. Kendrick Nunn played 23. You know, uh, even, you know, Duncan Robinson played and started 30. He started and also played 36 minutes, led the team in scoring with 24 points. Oh, I I should take it back. Dragic actually had 25, but Dragic played 35. So Tyler Hero, the breakout star of the playoffs last year, didn't end up playing as many games as people or as many minutes as people would have thought because he's been having a down year. So I like the Bucks here. I'm going to say the Bucks in six to close this out. And I think this threesome up, up at the top with Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, and Giannis, I think that's going to be really hard to stop. And I think they're going to cause a lot of problems for the Brooklyn Nets. Um, the next game we had on Saturday was Mavs Clippers. Now there's a whole, you know, scuttlebutt going on here about this game because neither one of these teams wanted to play the Lakers. So both of these teams kind of hung back to get the four or five spot to secure that they wouldn't have to play the Lakers on their side of the bracket until they get to the conference finals, which the Clippers make sense. The Clippers have that expectation on them. The Mavericks, you know, it's Luca and Everybody else, you know, Kristaps has been bad, right? You know, you're relying Jalen Brunson is the only other ball handler who you trust on the Mavericks team. And yet Luca is just so freaking good. And I was, I've been saying this on the last two pods. He is the heir apparent to the face of the league. I really do believe that his game will age like fine wine. He'll be able to play until he's 40. If he can get that three pointer up to 40% from three, there's literally nothing you can do to stop him. I mean, he had a 30 point triple double, 31, 10 rebounds, and 11 assists against Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, two of the best perimeter defenders that we've had in the NBA for the last, what, 10 years? So I, I, I kind of like Dallas in this. And look, it's the 4-5 matchup. So it wouldn't seem like that much of an upset if the if the Mavericks do, in fact, uh, uh, upend the Clippers. But I look at the Clippers lineups and I'm like, I don't I don't know who you're who, who are your best five. You have Kawhi and Paul George. We all know how you can't trust Paul George. Yes, Kawhi absolutely threw down a hammer dunk on Dwight Powell. Uh, but I was Dwight Powell. Yeah, I think, yeah, it was Dwight Powell. Um, you know, they, they have Maxi Kleba and Dwight Powell. I always get the two confused. But outside of those top two guys, Kawhi and Paul George, who else are you trusting? Are you trusting Patrick Beverly? Are you are you trusting Nick Patum? You know, Patum played 32 minutes in this game. 32 minutes? That's, that's insane. Zubac only played 19. I would have thought that they would have played Ibaka more, but Ibaka only played 13 minutes. Terrence Mann ends up getting zero total minutes in that game, which was shocking because he's been a really valuable asset towards the end of the season. And then they go out and they get playoff Rondo. You know, Rajon Rondo goes three for four from three, puts up 11 points. But on the defensive end, he's a bit of a liability at his age now. And so I, I just look at this Clippers team and I go, you don't have depth. You don't have neither of your two players wants the ball in their hands to initiate offense. So you got to trust Patrick Beverly or play Rondo 30 minutes. You know, I would rather see that because Patrick Beverly goes in, he gets put into, into foul trouble. He was a minus 13 and you got Marcus Morris, right? Minus 23, you know, and now on the bench, Reggie Jackson, I put in Reggie Jackson over Pat Beverly in 21 minutes. He's a plus 13 and, Yeah, he didn't put up huge stats, but at least we're seeing how effective he can be. You know, uh, and same thing with Ibaka. I mean, Ibaka comes off the bench, one of two guys. There are two guys on this team that were a positive plus minus. Third one, actually, Patum was too, but he was plus six. Ibaka was plus 11. Reggie Jackson was plus 13. Nick Batum was a plus six. Batum played a lot of minutes, but again, you can only trust him so much. This is a guy who got a huge contract and basically played himself out of the league after he went to Charlotte and got, you know, $70 million or $80 million. So I don't know what to make of this Clippers team. You know, there's no identity there and having an identity. Denton said this on the podcast last week is incredibly important. And the identity for the Mavericks is Luka Doncic. That's your identity. Get the ball to Luka Doncic and let him do his thing. And if you have to have Jalen Brunson, Jalen Brunson played 21 minutes. Those are, you know, and Luka plays 41. 
we know how that minutes distribution works, right? They're not spending a whole lot of time on the court together. Now, granted, Luca plays almost the entire game, but Brunson can also play off of Luca because he's a great spot up shooter. He can also alleviate some of the ball handling pressure when they decide to try to double team Luca. But the problem is you can't double team Luca because he's such a freaking good passer. So I don't know how the Clippers, unless they just have a, you know, they have to have monstrous three-point shooting nights in order to win. And look, as a team, they averaged 40% from three this season. As a team, that is objectively insane when you when you really boil it down and think about it. But I have concerns about this roster for the Clippers, and I think as long as Luka's there, unless you figure out a way to really, really slow him down, I don't think you're ever going to be able to beat. I don't think they're going to be able to beat them unless the Clippers string together four games out of the next six where they're shooting lights out from three. Now, granted, the final score was a little bit bigger than how the actual game felt, but start to finish, Dallas ran away with this one. And yes, it was a little close. It's still playoff basketball, and the Mavericks aren't a great defensive team. But even with Przingis, you know, Przingis goes four of 13, not a good night from for Przingis. I don't really know what to make of him in the long term there. And he almost feels like a bit of a sunk cost in a lot of ways for them. But, you know, we'll see how it ultimately, you know, kind of plays out. Uh, the third game we had on Saturday was Celtics and the Nets. Um, this was an interesting game because if you watch the first half, the Celtics were more or less in control. The Celtics were kind of running. You know, they had, a, a I think, like a seven, eight, nine point lead at one point in time. Jason Tatum's having a good game, um, which – you know, is to be expected. Jason Tatum's a, is a stud, you know, but at the end of it, you know, he ends up going six of 20 because he got ice cold in the second half. And the thing with this game was it never really felt close. Like it never felt like the Nets weren't in control of this game. It always felt like whenever they decided to kind of flip the switch, then it would just be over. And when you look at the starting lineup, Kevin Durant, Blake Griffin, Joe Harris, Kyrie Irving, James Harden, KD puts up, 32, 11, uh, 12 rebounds, one assist, makes 30 points look easy. He puts up the easiest 30 points I've ever seen a player in NBA history. Um, Blake Griffin plays 20 minutes, doesn't do much on the scoreboard, doesn't put much up in the box sheet, but he's a smart basketball player, and he knows his role. The humility on Blake Griffin to come in from being a max player, a guy who – was one of the biggest stars in the MVP, was a top three vote getter for the MVP just like six or seven years ago. The humility to come in and accept his role and just facilitate, use his passing skills in order to set up the, the big three there uh, is huge for them because the basketball acumen that Blake has, despite the fact that everyone always thinks of him as a dunker, he distributed the ball a lot. When he was in Detroit, he became a, a, almost like a like a point forward for them because he couldn't be the guy skying above everybody anymore. Um, and then Kyrie, Kyrie puts up 29, six rebounds, one assist. And then James Harden, James Harden took 13 shots. Uh, and even that seemed like a lot. And yet he still scored 21, 13 shots, but he got to the line 10 times. Goes nine to ten from the free throw. It's an easy 21 points. And I, look, if they're going to be able to do this to teams. The rest of the league might be in some trouble and I'm hesitant. I do think the Nets are still beatable, but I'm definitely a little bit hesitant to look at them and say, you know, is, is this going to be an all-time team? Is this going to be like Steph clay and Draymond and KD from just a couple of years ago? Cause there's a good chance that it might end up being that way, but you never know, right? We, we, you never really know how this kind of stuff turns out. I, I think the Nets end up taking that series in a sweep. I think it's going to be four games and they're going to be moving on to the next round. Uh, I also think the Mavericks, by the way, I do think the Mavericks are going to pull that out. I think it'll probably go at least six games, but I like Dallas because uh, at that point too, if it's game six, Dallas will have it on their home court with a chance to win it. I think Dallas and Luka does so. Luka's just got ice in his veins, you know, and, and there's a tendency with young players when they become superstars, they do it a little bit earlier than expected. And I think that Luke is on that path to do that now. Uh, the last game we had on Saturday was Portland versus Denver, in which we have the presumptive MVP, Nikola Jokic, going on against Damian Lillard. Now, this is a rough matchup for Denver. You know, Denver's front court is – yeah, sorry. Denver's backcourt is very banged up, right? No Jamal Murray, so – matching up against two incredible guards in CJ McCollum and obviously Damian Lillard 
it's just going to be really difficult for them because they're going to be throwing guys like, you know, Kim uh, Pazzo, who's a rookie, who I like a lot. But, you know, Kim Pazzo, he's like a kind of natty kind of defender. He get, kind of gets under guys' skins, but he's a rookie. And they're, def- they're, they're depending on him a lot. They're also going to be depending on Austin Rivers, who this is his third team this year already. Uh, and as much as I actually kind of like Austin Rivers, if he's going to be one of your starting guards in a matchup against Damian Lillard and, and CJ McCollum, like you're in trouble. And there's another interesting wrinkle here with Yusuf Nurkic, who grew up playing with Jokic. And I know there's a lot of itches in there, but that's an interesting matchup because even though Nurkic is not the best defender from the center position, he has experience. He grew up playing with Jokic. He understands kind of how he needs to defend him. And they held Jokic to one assist. He had 34, 16 rebounds and one assist. He was a minus 13. That is really rough for a guy who's averaging basically 10 assists a game throughout the entire season. Michael Porter Jr. had 25, but again, He's not playing guard. And if you look at the guys we're going to be covering, you know, from the forwards and centers, Norman Powell, Robert Covington, Yusuf Nurkic, those guys are going to create a lot of problems and they can still get buckets off the bench from Carmelo Anthony and Anthony Simmons. Uh, Simons. I think Denver, I think this, this series, at least I hope this series ends up being good, but I have a suspicion that I think Portland might actually run away with this. I could see this going to Portland in like five games. Now, look, there's a guaranteed Nikola Jokic, 40 points, 20 assists, 17 rebound kind of game. Like that that will happen at some point in this series. But I don't know if they're going to have enough to get past Damian Lillard, CJ McCollum. Because remember, too, like Dame has a lot of playoff experience. Dame's been doing this much longer than people remember, much longer than people realize. So I like right now Portland to win that series. And I think they're going to do it in about, I want to say six. I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Denver was really, really good after Jamal Murray. But when you're missing your second best player, there's only so much you can do, especially with how shallow they are at the guard position. So I'm going to say Portland wins this one in five. All right. uh, Another quick break. And then we're going to come back. We're going to do the Sunday games. And we're going to put a bow on this episode and get it out to the people. Uh, I'll be right back here in just a second. So the Sunday games were a little bit different. Uh, some were equally as exciting. We actually saw a pretty massive upset to cap off the night on Sunday night. Uh, and we also saw, you know, both one seeds in action. We saw LeBron take on Chris Paul. And we saw this fun little 4-5 series we have going on in the Eastern Conference between the Hawks and the Knicks. Uh, but starting off was Wizard Sixers. Now, What's interesting about this game was I think everybody coming into it would have said Sixers put up 125 points. That means Embiid probably scored 35, right? Well, Embiid still had 30. Embiid still had an incredible game. The Sixers won 125 to 118. The game was a little bit closer than it felt. Like, I think the Sixers really did feel like in control of it the entire time. But there's something a little bit off with this Sixers team. And I'm not exactly sure what it is. But my gut still tells me that there's something special about them. And, and a lot of people have been down on, you know, Ben Simmons on the offensive end. He only scores six points in this game. And yes, he only scored six points in this game, but he also had 15 assists and 15 rebounds. When Ben is putting up big assist numbers, that is very much representative of, of how aggressive he is, right? He goes 0 for 6 from the free throw line. If he buries those six free throws, he's at 12, 15, and 15, and we're talking about it very differently. You know, when, he, when he's picking up ahead of steam and initiating offense, it's huge for them. But the big eye-popping number here for the Sixers was Tobias Harris dropping 37 against the Wizards. And this is where I think the Sixers have a chance to be really special because in any sort of matchup they have, they can beat teams in a myriad of different ways. They can beat teams by just being the best defensive team in the league with Embiid locking down the rim with, with Simmons and Thibel and Danny Green and even Tobias Harris playing really, really strong defense on the perimeter. This team is incredibly difficult to stop. They can also beat you by mismatches, right? Does a team not have a big man? Well, then Embiid's going to go off on him. You know, again, Embiid still had 30 points and was a plus 20 in his plus minus. You know, he still had a block. He turned the ball over five times, but he did this all while getting into foul trouble. 
you know, out of the starters, Embiid played the least amount of minutes, and Dwight Howard played 18 minutes coming off the bench. He put in seven points, four rebounds. You know, so they have a quality backup who's won a championship, who's been one of the best players in the league before, backing up Joel Embiid. The other thing they can do is if teams try to really play small against them and spread them out or, or do what kind of the Wizards are doing here, which is pick up the pace, then Simmons can run as well as anybody in the, in the entire league. Westbrook, De'Aaron Fox, Ben Simmons. Those are like the three fastest guys, three fastest point guards in the entire NBA. So Simmons can run with them. He can crash the boards. But when he does that, a lot of times he's kicking out to open looks. And that's where this team gets dangerous because you're surrounding Ben Simmons with three and a half because Embiid dropped about 38% from three throughout the season. But you're still talking about four guys who shoot above the league average from three, which is 37%. So whether it's Tobias shooting 40%, Danny Green shooting 40%, Seth Curry shooting like 42%, you know, when Simmons has guys on the court who can shoot with him, guys like Korkmaz even, those are really, really big um, because no matter what this Sixers team, who, no matter who this Sixers team is playing, they can match up well against them. And even though all the pieces don't look perfect, I think they're set up here. And, and the thing I love about this team is it's the mindset. It's the intensity while also still having so much fun. Like there are so many awesome moments with this team off the court in pregames. And look, the Sixers shot 31% from three as a team. I would not expect them to shoot that poorly again. Uh, you know, Embiid goes over three from three, but he also goes 12 for 13 from the foul line. And that's the thing is that no matter who you're putting on him, Embiid's getting to the line. He led the league in free throws this year. That's going to continue to happen. Uh, and if Ben Simmons is playing insane defense and, and put it, pulling in 15 rebounds and 15 assists, that is that is a direct correlation to how aggressive Ben Simmons is being. Ben Simmons had eight offensive rebounds, eight of his 15 rebounds. He had more offensive rebounds than defensive rebounds. That is extremely telling because – If this offense is going to work, you have to put Ben Simmons in the dunker spot, just like we were talking about with Giannis. That means he's crashing the offensive glass. It means he's being aggressive. He had an insane put-back dunk. So I heard a lot of people kind of being down on Ben from this game. He only took nine shots. I'm okay with that because Tobias Harris took 29, shot fifty over 50% from the floor, and puts in 37 points. And if that's going to happen, the Sixers will be tough to beat. And again, they're playing a team with Russell Westbrook who didn't have a great game. I'm not expecting the Wizards to really do much more than maybe steal a game here. Bradley Beal still had 33 points, uh, but he also, you know, and, but he only went one for six from three because they were forcing him off the line. They weren't going to let Bradley Beal get open looks. Uh, and, and then you look at a guy like Russell Westbrook, 16 points. He did have 14 assists, but he also had three. Really bad turnovers at the end of the game. He had six total in the game. Bradley Beal had six turnovers in the game. And that is, again, a direct correlation between how aggressive defensively both Tybal and Simmons and Danny Green, all those guys are. Seth Curry's on the floor diving for balls. I think the Sixers, even though this game didn't look great and there were some moments where it seemed closer, the Sixers were actually losing at halftime. There was no doubt, just like the Nets game against the Celtics. There was no doubt this game really felt like it was in control by Philly the entire time. And I would expect them, again, to move on from this and take on the winner of of the the Hawks and the Knicks. Um, Lakers-Suns, that was the second game we had. Had some tempers flare here. Uh, A bit of a weird situation with LeBron and Chris Paul kind of trading borderline dirty plays. I don't think either of them necessarily were. But both guys end up getting kind of hurt from it. But the Lakers are going to be in some trouble, man. I, I the, the Suns are doing a great job, and I don't think LeBron's healthy. I don't know what's going on with Anthony Davis. He looked terrible in that game, which of course means in game two, Anthony Davis is going to come out and drop like 35 and 17 rebounds. Like I'm just preparing myself for that already because that's kind of the epitome of how you know Anthony Davis's career has gone. But DeAndre Ayton held his own. Even Saric, you know, when Dario Saric was playing in place as the small ball center, because there is no actual backup center on Phoenix's roster, which I know sounds crazy, but there isn't one. When Saric is going in playing small ball center at like 6'9", going up against Anthony Davis, he held his own. And the problem with this Lakers team is you just, we don't know who they're starting five or who they're closing five are going to be, you know? 
Is it going to be Caruso? Is it going to be Schroeder? Uh, how do you play Montrez Harrell? I, I thought the, the Montrez Harrell signing was weird when it happened because I didn't quite see the fit. Wes Matthews, who's well past his prime, he's supposed to be a 3 and D guy, but he can't really shoot. I mean, he can still shoot, but he's not shooting it like he was in Portland a few years ago, and he's not the defender that he was back there. You know, Kuzma ends up with a goose egg in this game, zero points. I don't know exactly what this team is going to look like. And when you're relying, and again, when you have LeBron, anything's possible, but I'm not sold that Andre Drummond is going to come in and help this team. You know, when Marcus Saul is getting a DNP, you know, what does that say about this team? You know, when Markeith Morris is getting a DNP, like I, they don't know who they are because they have played so much of the season without Anthony Davis and without LeBron. And meanwhile, this Phoenix team, they know exactly who they are, especially when Chris Paul is in. And I was really glad to see that Chris Paul didn't get hurt on that fluky play. I'm glad LeBron didn't get hurt either. LeBron put on a masterclass in acting, though. His his whole flop, you know, there was an awesome picture that was going around. There's a player from the Mets who unfortunately took like a 96-mile-an-hour fastball to the face and has all of these, you know, black eyes and a busted nose and stitches all over his face. And they put a side-by-side of his picture and LeBron. And the caption was the amount of seconds it took them to get up from getting hurt. And for the baseball player, it was 36 seconds for LeBron. It was 80 seconds and LeBron got poked in the eye. (laughs) And so granted the poked in the eye thing happened the other day, but LeBron is always one to flare dramatics right he that's just kind of who he is he loves being melodramatic he loves you know making everybody get in and buy you know oh my god is lebron okay it's like yes he's fine but the thing is is i don't think he's physically there right now mikhail bridges did an incredible job guarding him and i think the suns they know their identity monty williams has done an incredible job getting that team together and they're not super deep but they're deep enough. They're deep enough that I think they can actually win this series. And I think they can do it in at least, I think, I think it's going to be six games, but I think the Phoenix Suns are going to do it because I tell you what, I do not trust LeBron right now. I don't trust that he trusts himself. You know, when he came out and said, you know, I'm never going to be a hundred percent again. Everyone's like, what are you what are you talking about, dude? Like you're the Iron Man. You're never gonna be hurt. And of course, he says that to set himself up to now be the hero when he comes back healthy for the rest of the, you know, for this playoff run. But it doesn't look like he trusts that ankle. And I'm sure he's in as good a shape as he can possibly be right now. But whether it's Crowder, whether it's Mikhail Bridges, they're gonna be throwing a lot at LeBron. And I think it's gonna be tough. And, and so right now, I like Phoenix. But it's still LeBron, still Anthony Davis, and I'm not going to count them out. You know, I think this, I think this series goes six or seven games, um, and I could see it going either way for the six or seven games. Uh, last two games here from the first round, first games that we've had for the last couple of days: Atlanta and New York. Playoff basketball in New York. How awesome was that? Madison Square Garden. They had fans out there. Like I said earlier, they had the vaccinated section and then the non-vaccinated section. And it, it, but the whole crowd was just going nuts. You know, like I said, Emmanuel quickly buries that three and everyone's losing their shit. You got Spike Lee on the side there losing his mind over everything. Like it was, it was objectively so cool to see New York. And what's hilarious about the New York dynamic is that people don't care about the nets at all in that city. The, the nets have one of the greatest, starting five we've ever seen in the NBA in terms of talent. And yet in a local bar, they're showing Nick's showing Nick's replays at seven o'clock when there's a live Nets game going on. That is the state of New York. That is how little anybody cares about the Brooklyn Nets in that city. And also, and more importantly, how much they love the Knicks and how badly they want the Knicks to get themselves together, to get their freaking shit together. And finally, it looks like they have, but they came up a little bit short here in, in the first game of the series. Now, this so this series, I think, goes seven games. I do think this series goes seven games. The Hawks have far more talent, but Trey Young was remarkable in that game. Like, like legitimately remarkable. And 
you know, Bill Simmons said this on, on his podcast. He looked like prime like Steve Nash. And that's exactly what it was. I mean, he was super efficient. He only took 23 shots, 11 to 23, nine of nine from the line, got to the line nine times, only took three, three pointers, finishes with 10 assists, had seven rebounds. This is a guy who was incredibly undersized and yet played his ass off and they have a ton of depth, you know, bringing in Lou Williams, historically one of the worst bench playoff players ever. Now, Kevin Herter coming off the bench puts in eight points an efficient eight points in 27 minutes on the field. DeAndre Hunter still working his way back, only plays 20 minutes, but he's a great defensive player. And then you have Bojan Bogdanovich, you have John Collins, and then Clint Capella has done such a good job. I mean, 13 rebounds, especially, you know, considering that there is no real threat. I mean, Taj Gibson was playing closing minutes at center for the New York Knicks. Now, all that being said, the Knicks damn near won the game and was on one of Julius Randle's worst performances of the season six of 23 15 points 12 rebounds four assists uh really inefficient night for him for a guy who's averaging close to 25 a game and has pretty much led this Knicks team but that's when you look like a guy like Derrick Rose coming off the bench I mean 17 for for Derrick Rose uh hits the clutch bucket to tie it up with nine seconds left before Trey Young goes down buries the game-winning layout like there was a lot going on in this game. Nerlens Noel getting hurt might actually end up being a real problem here for the Knicks. But with Tibbs and that coach and that team, with Derrick Rose, Alec Burks had an incredible game, 27 for him. Emmanuel quickly scores 10 off the bench in 21 minutes. There are guys who can actually put up a real like real fight for this team. You know, I loved what R.J. Barrett did. Yeah, he didn't have the best shooting night from an efficiency standpoint, but he did a good job of helping kind of at least take some of the ball handling duties away from Derrick Rose and away from Elgic Payton, you know, um, Alfred Payton rather. So I, I'm not hundred percent sure. Again, this, this series should just be a lot of fun, you know, and Atlanta's hungry and, and they've done a great job. Nate McMillan's done a great job since he's taken over there. But I think this is going to be one of the sneaky underrated best series that we have in the first round. Cause I see this going seven games. You know, I, if Julius Randle comes back and has a 30-point night, you know, I don't, I don't see how the Hawks get past that. Um, but again, the Hawks have more talent and more depth, but there's more experience and there's more playoff experience. And you have Coach Tibbs, uh, who, who's won more in the playoffs than Nate McMillan, though both of which as head coaches have had iffy track records as a, as a head coach. So right now, my pick for the series, I think – I think the Knicks are going to find a way to pull it off. I think there's so much riding on this team, on this series. I think with Tibbs and every, I just think there's there's a lot of pressure, granted. But I think Julius Randle got this one out of his system. I think he comes back, and I think he balls out and has a really, really great rest of his series. I like the Knicks, and you can probably get some pretty good odds on them right now. Check out FanDuel or DraftKings, depending on where you're at. And the last game of the weekend, Memphis Grizz- Grizzlies, the eight seed, knocking off the Utah Jazz by three. Um, What an incredible game. Dylan Brooks, 31 points from Dylan Brooks. You know, and and there's so many little things in in this thing. I mean, John Morant had 26 on his own too. Um, You know, Kyle Anderson made some really, really smart basketball plays, had a really smart foul at the end. You know, Valanchunas going up against Rudy Gobert helps get Rudy Gobert fouled out. You know, that was huge. Now, there was no Donovan Mitchell in this game, but there was a really interesting report that I saw from a, from an insider connected to the Utah Jazz saying that a lot of Utah, a lot of the Utah players, they don't necessarily want him to come back. They think that he's going to come in and shoot the ball too much. I think that the ball movement is better. I find that a little hard to believe given the fact that they just lost to Memphis, but Memphis is a really good team. Um, you know, Boyan Bogdanovich puts in 29 believe all of that was in the second half I'd, I'd have to double check but he was on an absolute heater and he got fouled a few times at the end so a few of those are, are kind of garbage points he ends up going nine of nine from the free throw line I think he got fouled for a three late so I think all of that 29 was in the second half um, but Rudy Gobert fouling out only getting to play 25 minutes absolutely crushed this team and without Donovan Mitchell a guy who can you know, score 50 points. You know, there's no one else, no one else on this team that can do that. Uh, you know, Joe Ingles going three of seven. That's not a bad night for him, but it's also not a good night. You know, Mike Connolly, I think, took way too many threes. He goes three of 11. 
Um, he still had 22 points. You know, it wasn't the most efficient night for him, but you want to get Bogdanovich going a little bit easier. You want to get Joe Ingles going a little bit more from deep. And then Jordan Clarkson comes in off the bench and feels like, you know, he needs to put on Superman's cape and put in buckets because that's what he does as the sixth man. He's probably going to win sixth man of the year this year. Uh, but the Memphis, this Memphis team played incredibly well, like really, really fought, really, really well coached, really gritty. And John Morant has a knack for finding buckets at the end of the game. You know, coming off of that emotional overtime win on Friday night against the Warriors to knock out Steph Curry and Steve Kerr and Draymond and the Warriors from the playoffs, I would have thought they went into this, you know, kind of low energy, right? They, I figured they just would have kind of blew it all on Friday night. Instead, they come back and they have an incredible game one. I still think Utah wins the series. I think Donovan Mitchell comes back at some point. But I would not be surprised at all if Utah stretches this game into like six, seven games and could maybe even steal this thing because they're not afraid of anybody. You know, Dylan, I was thinking about this today. Dylan Brooks is Marcus Smart, but like a good Marcus Smart. You know, Marcus, he's not as good defensively as Marcus Smart, but he's got that same mentality, that kind of bulldog attitude. But he also isn't dumb. You know, he, he's not a heat check guy. And look, he could have been heat checked last night. He took 26 shots, but he made half of them goes 13, 26, three, uh, uh, two of five from three. And he scores 31 points. I mean, just an unbelievable performance. He's a smarter version of Marcus Smart. He's a more emotionally regulated version of Marcus Smart. And again, I don't think Memphis is going to win this series. I, I really don't. But I wouldn't be I genuinely would not be surprised if it goes six or seven games. And I also wouldn't be that surprised if Memphis wins. I no, I'd be surprised. I wouldn't be like blown away. I wouldn't be dumbfounded. I wouldn't be sitting here like, holy shit, what just happened? Especially after what we saw last night, because that team's going to be in every single game. They have hardworking, undervalued players, guys like Valanchunas. You know, when he left Toronto in that trade, when they brought in Marcus Saul to Toronto the year they go on to win the title, people forgot about Valanchunas. And that guy just puts up numbers. I mean, 15 and 12 in his sleep. And we've seen games where he puts in 30. And if he's going to challenge Gobert, who again, Gobert for as great of a rim protector as he is, when you challenge him one-on-one, -on -one, he's not a great defender. He's not. He's not in beat. You know, all of the best centers eat him a lot. Anthony Davis, Joel Embiid, Valanchunas puts in 15 points of him and gets him to foul out of the game. So if this is going to be a somewhat of a trend, I, I still think Utah has too much talent and I'm still going to pick Utah to come out of this. But what Memphis showed last night was really, really impressive. And I got to give credit to Denton because when we had him on the pod, his, his guy, you know, the guy that he wants the NBA to market more is John Morant. Cause he thinks John Morant's a guy who could end up being an, a, a top caliber player, a face of the league kind of player. And I'm not sure if I see that, He's not a good enough three-point shooter. His handle seems to get a little bit tighter, but he's so quick and athletic. And he also puts an emphasis on making his team better. You know, he's not the same kind of fast and athletic that we see out of Russell Westbrook, where it's like, I'm just going to take a million shots. Yes, I'm still going to put up 15 assists, but that's just because I'm a blazing speed and I'm an unbelievable athlete. Like, no, like Ja is quick. He's subtle. He knows how to get to his spots. He knows how to get to the, you know, get to the rim. He was 11 of 21 last night. Puts up 21 shots, but again, it's efficient. Still puts in four assists as well. I like Utah to win the series, but I think it goes at least six games. I think I, I don't think Memphis Memphis needs to win one more game for this to go to six games, and I think they can easily do that. I think I think we're going to see them do that, and they just took one away from Utah. What one of the hardest places to play in the entire NBA is Utah in Salt Lake City. You know, that entire city has one professional sports team and it's the Jazz. So they go nuts for Utah. They go nuts for the Utah Jazz. So again, there's too much talent, there's too much depth on Utah for them not to go out and, and inevitably win this series. But if uh, you know, 2 weeks from now we're looking back and going, "Holy shit. The Memphis Grizzlies just knocked off the 1 seed." I I don't think I would be that surprised. I really don't. Um, that's all I got. Uh, I, my initial picks were Utah and Philly to come out and meet in the, uh, the title. I'm, I'm not going to change that as of yet, 
But based on how I saw, based on how I saw Phoenix play, don't be shocked if the Suns make it to the finals. Maybe this is the year for CP, at least to get to the finals. Even if he loses in the finals, it would be great for his career for him to at least get there. Um, but I, I still like Philly, though I'm not as comfortable with that pick as I was before. I just think they're going to present a lot of problems, and I think they can score. Uh, uh, I think they can score enough to hang with Brooklyn, but their defense is what's going to be able to, I think, sl- I think they're going to be able to slow them down because, you know, the Celtics are terrible defensively. They don't have a spine when they're out there playing. The Sixers are going to be tough to score against. They're going to be really tough to score against. And I still think the Nets would be the favorites if they beat Philly. But I just feel like there's something a little bit special about this Sixers team. I don't know. I don't know. I think I think the Nets are vulnerable. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm still going to lean Sixers. I'm, I'm a little less confident uh, in Utah after, after what we saw last night. But especially if Donovan Mitchell comes back and tries to take a million shots, I mean, that could be really problematic. could be really problematic. But we'll see. We'll see. Uh, thank you all for listening. We will be back later on in the week. We're going to talk a little more about uh, the NBA playoffs. We're going to start some of our football preview stuff as we've seen some camps get underway. Aaron Rodgers is holding out. Keep an eye on that. Uh, but, you know, that's all I got for you all today. So follow us on at the read option pod on Instagram, on Twitter. You can follow me at Jeff underscore Gipple on Twitter. Uh, feel free to let me know how let me know what you thought of this let me know what you've thought of the last couple weeks i'll be honest with y'all peek behind the curtain the numbers have been awesome i i can't express enough how fantastic i feel how excited i feel about all of this i thought the cup the pods thought the pods we did last week were excellent and based off of the the reception i got and some of the numbers and the listens and everything we've gotten it's been unbelievable so i appreciate all of y'all for listening if you made it to this point you know shout me out on twitter let me know. My DMs are open. I'd love to love to talk to some of y'all. I'd love to get your thoughts on uh, on what you think of the pod, as well as what you you know what you're thinking here about the NBA playoffs. We're we're getting ready for it. It's going to be a long six weeks. I, I saw on the TV they were advertising the NBA playoffs start in July, which is crazy to me that we're already getting towards July, but we'll see. We'll see when we get there. Uh, thank you all for listening. As always, y'all are the best. We love you and. Take it easy. Have a great week. We'll talk to you later on. Bye.